Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're at the right podcast. Today we're talking about Season 6, Episode 16, Hell's Bells, where Xander and Anya head for the altar, give or take a demon or two. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author and story expert. You can find my fiction at lisalilly.com. Along with a breakdown of Hell's Bells, I'll talk about what all the mirrors in the episode mean, who is the protagonist, and which is the main plot. Xander facing an actual demon and his internal demons, or Anya aiming to get married. Subtle foreshadowing of the climax throughout the episode, dialogue and themes that smoothly shift from scene to scene, and the joy of having season five spike back, at least for now. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end when I talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Hell's Bells aired the first time on March 5th, 2002. It was written by Rebecca Rand Kirshner and directed by David Solomon. And I will include some highlights from their DVD commentary as I talk about the episode. We start with some foreshadowing and a comic opening conflict, though that isn't apparent right away. Thunder claps, rain pours, and the camera closes up on Buffy and Willow from the neck up, looking appalled and frightened. Willow says, Buffy, it's hideous. Oh my God, Buffy, look at its arms. And Buffy says, I know, but it's my duty. I'm Buffy the bridesmaid. The camera pans back, and both Willow and Buffy are in shiny green bridesmaids' dresses. On the DVD, David Solomon, the director, mentioned that these dresses were based on the ones at his wedding. He also commented on something that I didn't notice in my previous watching, but how many mirrors there are in the episode. So that got me thinking about it for the podcast. Willow is not convinced about the duty to wear these dresses. After all, she's the best man. And she says, shouldn't I be all Marlene Dietrichy in a dashing tuxedo number? But Buffy tells her, quote, that would be totally unfair. We must share equally in the cosmic joke that is bridesmaids dumb, end quote. Willow still hopes maybe Anya will let her, quote, go with a traditional blood larvae and burlap, end quote. After all, Anya, being a demon for so long, must know the best ones. This is a fun, great way to get in through some minor conflict, Anya's demon past. And now there's a little more while Buffy and Willow talk about how stressed Anya must be with Xander's relatives staying with them and Anya's demons. They shift to talking about the rehearsal dinner the night before, and Buffy says, I just can't believe everyone bought that story about Anya's people being circus folks. Did you see the guy with the tentacles? What's he supposed to be, Inky the Squid Boy? Willow asks if Buffy saw how much the Harris family drank. Buffy did. Mr. Harris threw up in her purse. 
Anya appears in the doorway. She's in a robe wearing curlers on her hair and she puts her hands to her mouth almost as if she's frightened. But then she says, oh, and hugs both girls in excitement about their beautiful gowns and says it's the happiest day of her life. The scene cuts to Xander trying to get ready for that same day. But in contrast to Anya, he is not looking happy. He's looking stressed. He's in the apartment. He's asking around for his cufflinks. His uncle Rory pretends to get electrocuted while trying to make an Irish coffee. And on the DVD, David Solomon noted how we've been hearing about Uncle Rory for six years, and now we finally get to meet him. And in a moment, we'll also get to to meet Xander's parents, who we've heard so much about. Anya's demon guests are crowding into the apartment as well. When the Harrises arrive, Xander's mother keeps commenting about how she looks and she's not happy with it, but it won't matter because she won't be in the wedding pictures. And Xander keeps telling her she will. This was the first moment that pulled me out of the episode because while I definitely identify with a mom or another parent making these types of comments that just add to the stress of the day, I didn't quite get why any mom of the groom would think she was not going to be in the picture. So I'm I'm guessing maybe, but there was a tiny part of my brain that was saying, what? what? I don't get it. Maybe just me. There are a few moments later that are stronger, so I'll talk about them then in terms of throwing me off. Mr. Harris criticizes Xander and makes fun of the quote-unquote circus people and comments that one of them must be one of hers, meaning Anya's. Cousin Carol asks if Kevin, and that's clearly not his name, it's something like Craven, although IMDb lists the character as just warty demon. Carol asks if Xander thinks he would date her if he could clear up that skin problem. After all, she can't be that picky since she has a kid. Xander realizes Carol's wearing his cufflinks as earrings. He's glad he found them and foolishly says, nothing on earth could stop this wedding now. This is a great transition to the next scene because it tells us whatever is coming is a threat. It's three minutes, 57 seconds into the episode, and this is the story spark or inciting incident that gets the main plot rolling. And it should come in any story before the 10% mark, and here it is a little bit before, and that helps keep the momentum going. In the pouring rain outside, an old man appears out of flames. In the street, he opens an umbrella and strides away, and we go to credits. On return, at almost exactly 10%, through Xander struggles to suck in his breath as Buffy tries to force his cummerbund to fasten. He comments that it was fine when he did the fitting, but now, but Buffy reassures him it'll fit as she uses her slayer strength to try to make that happen. And Xander says, oh man, what if it doesn't? What if I can't wear my cummerbund? And then the whole world can see the place where my pants meet my shirt. Buffy, that cannot happen. I must wear dusk. Buffy manages to get it fastened and tells him he looks great. There is 
a mirror in this scene as well, though they don't spend a lot of time looking into it. She tries to help him with his bow tie. She tells him he's glowing and he says he's happy. Buffy gets teary for him and tells him he and Anya give her hope, proof that there's a light at the end of the long, nasty tunnel. This makes sense in light of Buffy's relationship with Spike that has so disturbed her and that they just broke up though nobody else knows about it. But it also makes me struggle with a bit more of cognitive dissonance as I have throughout this season because these characters are 20 or 21 years old and everyone is acting as if they all should have found the person they're going to spend the rest of their lives with. And there is also the issue of last episode, Buffy saw what was presented as the perfect couple of Riley and Sam, but it was another moment where I had to step back and feel this kind of disconnect between how the writers see this world and how I see it as a viewer. Buffy asks Xander where the best man is because Buffy can't get that bow tie right and Xander says Willow had something important to do. This is another really nice segue in a subtle way because we switch to Willow and Tara. They are crouching down in front of a mirror together helping button Anya's wedding dress. And on the surface, that's the important thing, right? Helping the bride get ready. But another layer is that Willow and Tara are exchanging glances and brushing hands and giggling a little as they help Anya. Clearly part of their process of reconnecting. And I see that is what is important for Willow. While this is happening, Anya is sorting out her vows. She wants the other's feedback and she looks in the mirror as she does so. This is the first of a few times Anya will make an attempt at her vows. On one level, it's about comic relief, but on another, this shows Anya's internal struggle or conflict over what marriage means to her, what she is willing to agree to, and what she wants from marriage. Anya says, I, Anya, promise to love you, to cherish you, to honor you, but not to obey you, of course, because that's anachronistic and misogynistic. And who do you think you are, like a sea captain or something? Which is very fun and shows as well Anya is not one to follow tradition or convention. She's distracted by Willow and Tara who are giggling a little, but they tell her to go ahead. She says a few more things and gets to a more heartfelt part where she says, take care of my heart, won't you please? Take care of it because it's all that I have. And if you let me, I'll take care of your heart too. I'll protect it and tend to it like a little stray. Wait, no, like a little mangy stray that needs a home. This part of the vows foreshadows so much of the episode. Anya really is giving her heart to Xander. We'll see that throughout the episode and she is entrusting it to him, which turns out to not be something that will work out for her and it is devastating. But also characterizing Xander as a mangy stray that needs a home is so fitting for this episode. Xander will end up walking in the rain like a stray. 
and he does need a home, but he doesn't know how to get there. Anya is wearing an eye mask uh, over her eyes, one of those that's meant to take down puffiness, and her hair is in curlers, a very 50s sort of look. My mother had those kinds of curlers. She steps back and they all admire her dress. As Willow and Tara exclaim over it and how good she looks, Anya says it's the, quote, blush of imprudent spending, end quote, which shows us how much this means to Anya, who is very careful with money and very concerned about money. She then gushes about how excited she is. She wants to see Xander now. Willow and Tara remind her that it's bad luck for the groom to see her in her dress before the wedding. So Anya suggests, how about without the dress and muses over whether they could have sex or at least cuddle. She accepts that she can't see him, but she is still so excited. She gets to be with her best friend forever. More both foreshadowing and building of how awful the end is going to be for Anya. This former vengeance demon who is now putting aside all that cynicism she has about men and relationships and love and allowing herself to be happy. And what a wonderful way to describe the person you're going to marry and to describe marriage. You get to be with your best friend forever. On the DVD, the writer Kirshner commented that that was the thing about this episode, that usually they give Anya so much comic relief, but here she becomes human. And to me, that's what makes it so moving. That's what makes this episode work for me, despite not loving it that much overall. It is the best part of the episode, the strongest part. Interestingly, David Solomon responded in the commentary by saying, well, Anya's been loved a long time. She's probably thought about her own wedding, which I thought entirely missed the point. Anya, to the distinction she and Sandra made in an earlier episode, is talking about the marriage here, not the wedding. She is talking about the life they will build together, rather than her usual running commentary on human life that comes from almost a step outside from her former demon perspective. She is, to Rebecca Rand Kirshner's point, speaking as a human. At 8 minutes 38 seconds, Uncle Rory introduces Don to his, quote, date for the night. He's got his arm around a young woman caterer in a uh, tuxedo-like outfit who looks clearly uncomfortable and wants to go back to work. And there was another DVD commentary difference between Kirshner and Solomon because Kirshner said when she wrote it, she did not mean the uncle to be intentionally rude. And Solomon was surprised because he thought it was definitely meant to be that way. And in fact, he toned the scene down from where the way he initially directed it. And this is one where his view came through very clearly. I also think his view fits better from a perspective of 25 years later where we recognize how out of line Xander's uncle is dragging this young woman around and keeping her from doing her job. De Hoffren arrives and hands Don a large 
present and wishes her Hyman's greetings, which he explains by saying that is the god of matrimony. And he goes on, may the love we celebrate today avoid an almost inevitable decline. More foreshadowing along with the thunder and rain and lightning in the background. Halfric comes in with him. She is also in a radioactive green bridesmaid's dress, as is Dawn. She offers Dawn a cheery greeting, says, call me Hallie, because they're practically family now. Dawn is not exactly effusive. She turns to DeHoffrin and offers to put his gift on the table, and he says, oh, thank you. Careful. It's, uh, and Dawn says, fragile, and he clarifies, squirmy. Hallie follows Dawn and says, so, Dawnie, how's everything? Going good? Nothing you, uh, wish was different? And DeHoffrin says, Hallie, for yikes sake, take a day off. We're not here to do vengeance. We're here to mingle. A very fun and entertaining way through more minor conflict to remind the audience of Anya's vengeance demon past and a little bit about how that works. And I also just love seeing Hallie. Any episode she's in, she adds so much. At 10 minutes, 24 seconds, Spike walks in with a young woman vampire who is uh, very goth looking and introduces Dawn to her um, without naming her, though uh, IMDb says her name is Tarantula. He just introduces Dawn to his date and adds that she's with him and then says his date for the wedding, making his point. The guests mingle near the bar and this was the biggest point that on first watch and on every watch pulls me out of the story. I have been to weddings where it's not something where it's at a church or a chapel and then you go to a reception, but instead like this one, everything's held in some sort of a club or lodge. You've got the ceremony set up in one part. You've got some back rooms and a kitchen. You've got a bar area. So that didn't throw me, but I have never into one that had a sort of reception before the ceremony. I suppose you could have one. You you have somewhere for the guests to gather and chat before they go sit down. But it becomes odder still when Xander comes out and is greeting everyone. And this is an example of if you're going to write something into your story that it, maybe it does fit your experience. I don't know. Maybe the writers had been to this type of a service. I think it's pretty different than what most people experience. And you've got to weigh doing that with, is your audience going to be confused? One way you can handle that potential reader confusion, if you're going to have an unusual situation, is to have a character call it out. For instance, here, if Xander's mother earlier had somehow been offended by the idea, or if his father started complaining about the extra expense, why do we have to pay more to have this space before the ceremony. That could have helped. We would have known the writers knew it was unusual. I had a situation like this where I wrote a short story, a horror story. It was set in a law firm, and this was 20-some years ago, right when large firms and corporations were adopting business casual, but most people were not used to it yet. 
And I had a couple beta readers who really stumbled over the fact that this attorney who was trying to become a partner wasn't walking around in a suit and tie. I had something where he had to borrow a tie for a, for a big meeting, and they just couldn't get past it. And it did not matter for purposes of my story, so I just dropped it. Even though I knew it was authentic, it made the readers believe that I had no idea what I was talking about writing about lawyers and firms. And you can't, as the writer, say, no, no, this is this is really real. This is real life. So I just dropped it out because it did not matter to my story. Here, you absolutely need this pre-reception to make the story work. So much hinges on it, as we'll see. So in that instance, I might have done what I mentioned earlier about calling it out one way or another and having a character comment on the oddness of it. There are some awkward moments among the guests about the circus freak pretense. Some of them are arguing. Mr. Harris is already at the bar drinking. In a back room away from it all, Buffy tells Xander he's one of the decent guys. She hopes she'll find someone like him one day. This also pulled me out a little because as I've talked about um, and some guests on the podcast have talked about, Xander is a problematic character more so when viewed from the lens of 25 years later. So it makes me pause when Buffy is going on about how she wants to find someone like him. But I feel like at the time I watched it first, I agreed with Buffy. And this is another foreshadowing because Xander won't be that great guy today. And he so wants to be. I believe Xander in this episode is feeling tremendous internal pressure. He wants to be a decent person and do the right thing. But he has all these fears and he does not know how to do that. Did you know that you can borrow audiobooks free from your library? Those include the audiobook editions of my book's Super Simple Story Structure and the one-year novelist, a week-by-week guide to writing your novel in one year. Check your library's website or call them. If the books aren't already in the catalog, your librarian can easily request them. You can also borrow the print editions of those books and other writing as a second career books, including seasons one and two of Buffy and the Art of Story. And remember, all of these books are in my clever nonfiction author pen name, L.M. Lily. If you want to check out my mystery series, you can get the print editions of those books at the library as well. The first one is The Worried Man, a QC Davis mystery by Lisa M. Lilly. On the DVD, Kirshner and Solomon mentioned that this scene features another mirror. And Solomon jokes, it's because everyone's checking themselves out before the wedding. Kirshner jokingly said it's because they're all reflecting on themselves. But I thought she was spot on about that. And I take it 
further, the stories here are about people versus themselves. Anya It's her desire to spend her life with Xander to get married versus what she knows from a thousand years or what her experience is from a thousand years as a vengeance demon who was called upon when everything went horribly, horribly wrong. And it's also what she wants versus society's norms about marriage and what they tell her marriage should be. For Xander, clearly tons of internal struggles about himself and who he is in a relationship. And even Buffy faces in this episode more of her feelings about Spike, her mixed feelings, and she is more honest with herself and with him in this episode. And then there's Tara and Willow. That's a little more of seeing themselves reflected. We don't see them gazing at themselves in the mirror, but we do see them reflected as they start to connect again. Xander is finally ready. He walks with Buffy through the halls, heading for the reception area, and Xander says, now, let's go over the list one more time. Number one, Buffy says, don't let your dad near the bar. Xander says, check. Number two, and Buffy responds, don't let your mom near the bar. And Xander says, check. A little more foreshadowing because it's already too late. Or maybe I should say just a little more conflict because we as the audience know it is too late. At 12 minutes, 25 seconds, Dawn joins them in the back and tells Buffy Spike brought a total skank and they're making out all over the reception area. And Buffy says Spike brought a date. We're now approaching the part of the episode where we typically see the first major plot turn. I think of it as the one-quarter turn because in almost all novels and a lot of movies and TV shows, it comes about a quarter way through, sometimes more of a third of the way through. Wherever it is, it should spin the story in a brand new direction and raise the stakes. Here, it happens a bit late, which adds to the episode for me feeling a bit off in the sense that on first watch and probably second watches, I struggled a little with what exactly is the story here? What is the plot? But the reason that is, is because it's kind of a slow burn. There's a lot that leads up to the moment where the old man confronts Xander and takes him aside. There's a lot that puts Xander in a state to listen to this man. So at 12 minutes, 57 seconds, that starts when Xander takes a deep breath in front of the door to the reception area and his whole body language language shows us how anxious he is. He enters, starts shaking hands with people. Someone complains about the photographers. Dawn says one of Anya's presents almost got away, and his mother complains about where the usher sat them. This, like the pre-ceremony reception, also drew me out of the story because ushers seat people when the ceremony starts. Even if you were having some sort of pre-ceremony space to gather and mingle, it doesn't make any sense to me that ushers would first seat people and then people would leave because not everyone's going to have something to leave on the seats to remind them where to sit. And now I'm thinking about all of that instead of the story. So I'm not sure why they didn't just find something else for her to complain about. 
Xander is breathing harder and harder and looking more panicky as everyone talks to him. And that's when an old man pulls him aside and says Xander has to listen to him. And the man says, you can't get married today. It's a huge mistake. Now, this could be the turn, but if Xander doesn't listen, it won't matter. And Xander at first is just fumbling around for who this guy is, thinking he's another uncle. But the man says Xander has to believe him and goes on, I'm Xander Harris, I'm you. And at 14 minutes, seven seconds, we cut to a commercial. On return, Xander asks what the man means and he clarifies, I'm you from the future. And Xander says, oh, from the future. For a minute, I thought you were a nutball, but now that you're from the future. The man interrupts to say he came back to warn Xander, but Xander is distracted when his father proclaims that he's ready to do a toast. He's right at the bar, and under his breath, Xander says he swore he told the bartender no drinks before the wedding. So I like that we acknowledge the oddness of that, at least, and that Xander tried to prevent this. As the toast starts, the man pulls Xander away into a back room and shows him what looks like a small crystal ball. And on the DVD, um, the writer and director joke that it's a magic paperweight, which made me think of the Orb of Thessala back in season two that Giles was using as a paperweight. Oh, and that toast, the beginning of it, also contributes to Xander's state of mind because he hears it as he's following the man out. Mr. Harris says, to my wife, what would I do without you, beautiful? Well, for starters, I probably wouldn't need to drink so much, would I? He talks some more, and Xander is gone by this point, but he says marriage probably saved him from a nasty dose of the clap. One of the demons asks another if that guy ever shuts up, and Mr. Harris goes on, and a toast to the bride's dermatologically challenged family shrub. A fight almost breaks out between one of the demons and Mr. Harris, but Buffy pulls Mr. Harris away reminding him that he must be so happy for Xander on his once-in-a-lifetime day. He asks whether she had a small purse, a reference to him throwing up in it, and then he starts coming on to her. She suggests he get a strong cup of coffee, and he says, hey, would you say we slip in the back room and I show you my, and Buffy says, you finish that sentence and I guarantee you won't have anything to show me. At 16 minutes, 12 seconds, the old man tells Xander to look at the crystal. He'll see what future Xander felt. Xander does, and there's a bright light, and now Xander's in his tux, but in a recliner. I see this as what turns the story, the pulling of Xander into the paperweight. You could also see it as Xander going off with this old man at all, which puts it a little bit earlier but all of it put together is what spins the story in a new direction. And that direction is forcing Xander to confront his deepest fears. Anya, looking a bit older and wearing a dark pink suit, argues with Xander in the living room as their son and daughter run around. The daughter is part demon. She's got these demon ears. Anya is heading out to do a makeover party because someone needs to make some money and they argue about how Xander got injured helping Buffy and Anya says well it didn't save her did it all it did was ruin our lives and he yells after her as she leaves I hope you crash in your stupid pink car. 
the scene cuts to Xander and Anya out to dinner with their now teenage kids. The two teenagers call each other names. Anya and Xander argue. And the daughter stalks off saying she knows Xander's not her real dad. On the DVD, Kirshner commented that it's the future, but their clothing looks a lot like the 1950s. But she doesn't say why that is. Maybe that wasn't a writer's choice. But it's interesting because I mentioned those curlers earlier that had a 50s vibe. And now at 18 minutes, 28 seconds, we cut to further in the future in this kitchen that looks super 1950s the the way the appliances are styled there's a dishwasher that's pulled out away from the counter I think it's one of those freestanding ones people used to buy if their kitchen didn't include one and there's a cart with this big metal coffee urn on it that makes me think of church fundraisers back when I was a kid. Xander and Anya argue about Anya cheating on him way back. She blames him because he wouldn't come near her after Buffy died. He yells at her not to bring Buffy into this. I find it interesting that we've seen in so much of the series, Xander had this ongoing thing for Buffy, which was finally pretty much gone when he and Anya got involved. But now Buffy still factors in this vision that his close friendship with Buffy, that he kept fighting with Buffy, is one of the ongoing issues in the marriage. Clearly, that's not what it's really about, but that is where some of the recurring fighting centers, which seems very realistic. Anya yells at Xander, who is still in that tuxedo, for ruining the last 30 years of her life and making her hate herself. Xander yells back, and he raises a heavy frying pan over his head and is about to swing it. So we're not quite at the midpoint of the episode. It's about 19 minutes, 3 seconds in. But this is a major reversal for Xander. In the middle of a strongly structured story, usually we see the protagonist make a major commitment, suffer a major reversal, or both. I'll talk about later whether or not Xander is the protagonist in the main plot, but whether we see his story as main plot or a very, very strong subplot, this is a reversal for him. And this is part of what makes the story a bit uneven as well, because that one quarter turn didn't really come that long ago, but now we're at that major reversal. Xander is yanked back to the present before we actually see that frying pan hit Anya. And I should add, it looked more like a cast iron pan, which is extremely heavy and would do a lot of damage. And Xander begs the old man to tell him what happened, what he did. And the old man says he's so sorry he didn't want to have to show him that. Xander asks questions, but the man says he doesn't have long. The spell that sent him here is going to take him away again soon. But the important thing is Xander can change things. He can't marry Anya. And he says, quote, you'll hurt her less today than you will later, end quote. And he goes on that sometimes all two people bring each other is pain. Another subtle transition because we cut to Buffy who runs into Spike who is now standing alone. Another two people who bring each other pain. 
on the DVD, they said that Joss Whedon wrote this scene. And this is where I see Spike being so much more like season five Spike, who is in love with Buffy, who still has edges, who can be cutting when he talks to her on occasion, and is still a vampire, but who genuinely cares about Buffy. And despite being unhappy that he can't be with her or she is not, as he sees it, admitting her love for him, he still wants her to be happy, still wishes her well. Right now, he's Petty Spike, which is always fun. He says, you meet my friend? And Buffy, being really honest, says, no, not yet, but she seems like a very nice attempt to make me jealous. And she admits that it is working a little, though it doesn't change anything. And she goes on, but if you're wildly curious, yeah, it hurts. And Spike says, I'm sorry, or good, which also is so very Spike. He then says that they can leave if she wants, but Buffy tells him he can stay. He has every right to be there. An acknowledgement that he is part of the group, something that we have not seen much of in the season, where mostly Buffy and everyone else is acting like Spike is still more like season four Spike in The Total Outsider. Both Buffy and Spike are awkward as they continue to talk. Spike finally says, it's hard, and he and his date will go. Buffy asks if they're going to Spike's place, and he says, yeah, I suppose that was the idea. And Buffy says, yeah. And Spike says, evil. And Buffy says, of course. And then Spike tries to claim he won't. And then he rolls his eyes and says, they will. He tells her to give his best to Xander and Anya and finishes, it's nice to watch you be happy, for them even. I don't see it a lot. You glow. Buffy laughs a little and responds, that's because the dress is radioactive. As she starts to walk off, he says, but it hurts. And Buffy answers, yeah. And Spike says, thanks. And he leaves. And when he is too far to hear, Buffy quietly says, you're welcome. I love the whole exchange. It feels so authentic to who these two characters are. David Solomon said the expression on Buffy's face when Spike is talking about taking the vampire home to his crypt. Solomon sees her expression as at once humiliated and titillated. And Rebecca Kirshner was surprised at the titillated part. She read Buffy as angry. I went back and, and watched, and I really couldn't tell because it's a profile shot when they're having that conversation. And I couldn't say one way or the other. If you feel like going back and watching, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. At the door, Spike takes the vampire's hand and starts dragging her out. And she says, what about the wedding? And we cut to Xander, who has that same question in his mind. And he paces in this very nice kitchen. It's updated. It's shiny. It's such a contrast to the kitchen in his vision. Willow joins him very excited for him and says how good he looks. And it's a good thing she realized she was gay. Quote, otherwise, you, me, and formal wear. End quote. A really nice callback to season three where they were getting ready for the prom and ended up kissing after seeing each other so dressed up. 
It's 23 minutes, 14 seconds in. So a bit past the middle of the episode and they hug and she says, does he know how much she loves him? And he says about half as much as he loves her. Willow now asks if he's ready for the long walk. He tells her to give him a second. He wants to work on his vows and Willow tells him to take his time. It's not like they could start the wedding without him. A little more foreshadowing of what's to come. Now we transition. Xander claimed he was going to work on his vows and Anya is still working on hers. Another very nice, subtle transition. Anya says, I, Anya, promise to cherish you. Ooh, no, not cherish. I promise to have sex with you whenever I want and um, a pledge to be your friend, your wife, your confidant, and your sex poodle. And Tara says, uh, sex poodle? Anya responds, yeah, why? Tara says, I'm not sure you should say sex poodle in your vows. And Anya says, huh. A string quartet starts playing where all the chairs are lined up for the ceremony and people start sitting down. Buffy pops her head into the back room to ask if Anya's ready, but Willow yanks Buffy away and into the hallway and tells Buffy that Xander disappeared. And we cut to a commercial. Now, if Anya is the protagonist, this is 24 minutes, 34 seconds. So it's a little bit beyond the midpoint, but it is a pretty good midpoint reversal for Anya, despite that she's unaware of it. It's going to have a huge effect on her. If you have a moment and you are listening on your phone or your laptop, could you scroll down and look for the place to give a star rating to the podcast or to write a few words about why you listen? It will help other listeners find the show and decide whether or not they might enjoy it as well. And thank you to all of you who already did that and to listeners and patrons who shared the show on social media and tell their friends about it. Thank you so much. You are helping other Buffy fans and storytellers find the podcast. The episode cuts to a commercial. On return, Willow tells Buffy she'll go find Xander. Buffy should stall. Buffy returns to Anya and claims there's a delay. The minister had to perform an emergency C-section, which Anya understandably questions. Buffy rambles, yeah, you know, he's not just a minister. He's a doctor. He's like half minister, half doctor, a minister. Not, of course, to be confused with a minotaur. Because he's all, you know, man, this doctor, minister man, no bull parts whatsoever. Anya gets bored, turns to look at herself in the mirror again, and Buffy leaves. Tara stays in the room with Anya, who now faces the camera and says, for the last time. And she now recites her vows. I, Anya, want to marry you, Xander, because I love you and I'll always love you. And before I knew you, I was like a completely different person. 
During these vows, at this point, we cut to Xander walking in his tuxedo through the rain, and and we'll see him as Anya keeps talking. And she says, not even a person, really. And I had seen what love could do to people, and it was hurt and sadness. Alone was better. And then suddenly there was you, and you knew me, you saw me, and it was this thing. You make me feel safe and warm. So I get it now. I finally get love, Xander. I really do. These vows always make me cry. It is so sad for Anya to finally be able to express all of what she feels and to be saying how safe Xander makes her feel as he has left the wedding ceremony and is out there like that stray in the rain. And this tells us just how devastated Anya will be if Xander does not return. We cut to people sitting in the rows of chairs for the ceremony looking restless. A child says, I'm bored. And Cousin Carol says, it's a wedding, honey. We're all bored. At 26 minutes, 55 seconds, Buffy walks in, goes up that red carpet in the center aisle, and the string quartet starts playing, probably thinking, okay, first bridesmaid going down the aisle, but Buffy waves at them to stop. She whispers to the minister, who is played by David Solomon, and goes down the aisle again, and the quartet again plays as she leaves just there for comic relief. In that back room, Anya paces, complaining to Tara about the rudeness of that minister and the mother delivering a baby on Anya's special day. Couldn't the mother just hold it? At the bar, Mr. Harris says it's that Anya. He knows it. She got them to pay for the wedding, and now she's messing it up. A good theme because we'll see that others think the problem must be Anya as well. Halfrick says to Dehoffrin, they should have known Anya would never. And Dehoffrin cuts her off saying he's worried about Anya. Now Halfrick sulks because Anya's always been Dehoffrin's favorite, but he assures her he loves all his vengeance demons equally. Another moment with a little comedy, a little conflict, stressing Anya's vengeance demon past. Buffy tries to stall the crowd. She's up at the microphone. She's asking questions about where they're from. She juggles along with the demon everyone keeps calling Kevin, and she does some charades. Off to the side, Dawn and a teenage demon talk, comparing their messed up families. Anya, impatient, heads out. Tara rushes after her. Anya's insistent on the wedding beginning, minister or not. Just as she passes, Dawn tells the other teenager that the, quote, groom took off and no one can find him, end quote. At 29 minutes, 50 seconds, Anya overhears that and demands to know what's going on. How can Xander be missing? All the guests turn and look. Uncle Rory thinks Xander's playing a joke. And then a demon complains about all these Harris family jokes and all their drinking. A fight, a physical fight, breaks out between both sides. Everyone dives in, except Buffy, who rolls her eyes. Tara is caught up in the middle, but Willow grabs her by the arms and pulls her to a quieter area. Anya goes around asking about Xander, and Cousin Carol points out the old man in the trench coat and says she saw Xander go into the trophy room with him. 
Now we're at the three-quarter turn, the last major plot turn in any story. It grows out of the midpoint, or it should, and takes the story in yet another new direction. So that first plot turn comes from outside the protagonist. It's not from anything the protagonist did or experienced yet, but this one should come from the midpoint reversal or commitment. At 31 minutes, 19 seconds, Anya asks the man what he said to Xander. And the man says, it doesn't matter. It's done. And Anya asks, what's done? Did he say something to make Xander leave? If he did, she'll, and he cuts her off and says, you'll what? And he goes on that she hasn't changed a bit and she doesn't even recognize him. The man tells her Xander left because of her. I see this as the three-quarter turn, though, again, it's a bit of a struggle because this part does not directly affect Xander. So if he's our protagonist, I'm not sure where that last major plot turn is for him other than how this affects Anya. For Anya, though, this is a huge turn. Up until now, she's been getting ready for the wedding. She's been sorting out the vows and her feelings. She's headed out to make this wedding happen, minister or not. And now it's not just that Sanders gone. It's that somebody did something to cause him to leave. And the conflict escalates here. The man tells her Xander left because of her, and she protests that she didn't do anything. And he says, what about this? And transforms into a very tall demon. As the fight goes on in the background, the old man, now with a deep demon voice, tells her she did this and calls her Anyanka. So she finds out that the person who sent Xander off was somebody she cursed. He reminds her about the south side of Chicago in 1914. She cursed him and ruined his life by turning him into a demon, and he was tortured in another dimension. And every day of that torture, he thought about how to get out and get to her and pay her back. Then he tells her, devastating her more, that it didn't take much to scare off Xander. All it took was a couple phony visions of Xander's nightmare version of his future with Anya. Anya cries and asks if that's really all he did, and he says, yes, it was easy. And he is very happy now. He loves to see Anya cry. Then he says now he wants to see her scream and he hauls off and hits her. Buffy intervenes. She's a little bit limited in fighting due to that narrow long skirt on the bridesmaid's dress. But Xander arrives just in time to help save Anya. And on the first watch, I thought they would still get married. Buffy keeps fighting the demon as Anya explains off to one side to Xander that it was all lies. The demon just wanted to break them up. Xander says it doesn't matter now. An ambiguous comment that could mean it's too late to change anything or that he's ready to get married. A nice way to keep the suspense going. Buffy grabs a veil from a decoration to help her fight the demon, uh, causing Kirshner on the DVD to comment that Buffy is like a modern-day MacGyver. Xander helps finish the demon off by using this fake pillar to slug him. All the guests clap and start leaving. 
Mr. Harris surveys the damage, calls the others freaks, and says he is not paying for this, which starts the fighting again. But Anya yells at everyone to stop and to sit down. This wedding will go on. Though it's a bit early, we are reaching the climax where the antagonist and protagonist have their final confrontation and reach a resolution. It's a little hard to sort out. It's not the physical fight, though that could be part of it if Xander is the protagonist, but the real conflict here is whether this wedding will go on. Going to that protagonist question, I look at three things. Who's the main point of view character? Who has the most at stake? And who is actively pursuing a goal throughout the episode? Part of me leans toward Xander. Both of them are actively pursuing the goal of getting married. And I don't know that one is more active than the other. Xander seems to have more. Well, he clearly has more to overcome come and we see it through body language we see it through his comments and then of course when the old man demon confronts him that internal conflict becomes external Anya's conflict is more subtle but it's what I talked about as she goes through her vows that process gets her ready to make this commitment she was ready to do it from the beginning but it helps her sort out the internal conflict about what it means. So we're pretty even on that. It probably leans a little more towards Xander because even if Anya did not sort that out, she was going to get married today. Who has the most at stake is really tough because we see how much Anya is on the line here, her heart, her emotions, letting herself be vulnerable in this way that she has avoided for a thousand years. Xander, though, has a ton at stake as well. His whole concept of self, who he is, being that decent guy that Buffy calls him, and that great fear about being like his father and repeating the whole cycle, something that was alluded to in the previous episode. So that's pretty close as well. And point of view is a tough one too. We see a bit more of Xander because of his interactions with the old man, where we kind of cut back to Anya. On the other hand, we see Anya in the very beginning and in the very end end. So that is a tough one as well. And until I did my notes for the podcast episode and got a little past this point, I was pretty sure Xander was the protagonist and his plot, Xander versus the demon who's trying to stop his wedding, which symbolizes Xander's inner conflicts, was the main plot. But I'll get to why I changed my mind on that. This trouble sorting out the protagonist is also what makes it hard to pinpoint the climax. Xander has already prevailed over the demon physically, and he's also resolved his inner conflict, but we did not see that and we don't know it yet. It's only going to come out in a few minutes. So his resolution, his real resolution comes off screen while Anya's is on screen. And the demon wins as to Xander and to Anya, because the wedding is not going to go forward. The other thing that's tricky about who the protagonist is 
is the antagonist. In Xander's and Anya's stories, you could see the old man, Demon, as the antagonist. The antagonist's one job is to push against the protagonist, and he pushes against them both to stop this wedding. But his goal is to hurt Anya, which he succeeds at. One of the things to create a strong story that you want is a protagonist and antagonist with mutually exclusive goals, which Anya and the demon have here. Anya wants to have the happiest day of her life. The demon wants to wreak his revenge and make her life the type of living hell that he has just been through. Demon versus Xander is somewhat different. Xander is more of collateral damage for the demon. That is what made me start thinking that the main plot probably was Anya versus the demon and also versus Xander. These struggles are probably why it's not my favorite episode because I like a clear plot. I like a clear protagonist and antagonist. I love to have layers. I love to have strong subplots. But this type of mix for me in a story doesn't work as well. Other other people have no issue with it. To get back to the plot, whosoever it is, near the door at about 35 minutes 43 seconds, Anya jokes with Xander that it's bad luck to see her in her dress, but she assures him it's all okay. The demon's dead. It was all smoke and mirrors. They're ready. It's time to get married. Now Xander says he's not ready, and his voice breaking. He tells her he's sorry. He knows the visions weren't real. Anya asks what the man showed him about her because it wasn't real and the demon wanted Xander to hate her. And now we get to the crux of it because Xander says it wasn't her he was hating. He had these thoughts and fears before. Maybe they went too fast. Anya tells him everyone has questions. It doesn't mean getting married is wrong. He just needs to calm down. They can start over. So this makes me see that in Xander's plot, it is Anya who is the antagonist. The demon is symbolizing his internal conflict, but it's ultimately Anya because Anya is the one who needs him to be ready now. And that has been consistent with the entire season where Anya is ready. He was the one who proposed last season, but he's been delay, 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 avoid, avoid, avoid. And Anya has been the one who needs this to happen since he proposed. She wants to get married. This is the climactic moment. She says they can start over. Xander looks at his father who is standing over his mother and yelling at her. And he tells Anya he doesn't want to hurt her. They can't start over. If it's a mistake, it's forever. He says he's sorry again. Anya sees he means it. There's nothing else she can do. And tears running down her face, she turns away and stumbles toward the guests. Xander watches her and at 38 minutes, 16 seconds, he leaves. Anya walks down that aisle alone and that is the resolution. There will be no wedding. Xander and Anya are separate. All the guests stand. The quartet plays very slowly. Anya freezes and just stands there looking 
down. This is the falling action where the story ties up loose ends and resolves subplots and sometimes puts in moments to continue the season arc, as we will see here. The scene cuts to Buffy, Willow, and Dawn on the sofa in the Summer's house, looking dejected, talking about what they can do for Anya, who wants to be alone. Dawn comments she thought Anya and Xander were happy. Buffy agrees she saw them as the light at the end of the tunnel. She guesses they were a train. Willow feels like she should be hating Xander, but she can't. She just hopes he's okay. At 40 minutes 7 seconds, we cut to a hotel manager showing Xander into a dingy hotel room, telling him the air conditioner is broken and checkouts at 11 tomorrow. At 40 minutes 33 seconds, Anya, still in her wedding dress, sits looking despondent, and the background is simply black. David Solomon said it's a entirely black background because it's where de Hoffren lives in a void. De Hoffren's hand enters the frame, handing Anya a handkerchief. Then we see him as he offers her comfort and tells her the problem was she let Xander domesticate her. When she was a vengeance demon, she was powerful. She crushed men like Xander. And de Hoffren says, it's time you got back to what you do best, don't you think? Anya looks up at him and we cut to credits. That is it for Hell's Bells, other than foreshadowing, which does include spoilers. If you're not sticking around for that, thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for season six, episode 17, Normal Again, where a demon injects a potion into Buffy and she hallucinates that she's in another life where she's not the Slayer. And we are back for foreshadowing, which includes spoilers. So much of this is about Anya in this season. She will try to take revenge directly on Xander and learn that she can't. She'll then turn to his friends to try to get them to make a wish for her. This also foreshadows season seven particularly the episode Selfless, where Anya slaughters a group of frat boys. That episode includes a flashback to a song with Xander that is meant to have taken place during the time of the musical when the demon made everyone sing and dance. And in it, Anya wears her wedding dress again. And that makes me cry too, the whole song. Also, this foreshadows the relationship between Hallie and Anya, which we see more of in season seven, and which ends in a devastating way when de Hoffren kills Hallie as punishment of Anya for choosing to take back her wish and her actions of killing the frat boys. And this goes to de Hoffren, uh, Hallie saying Anya is de Hoffren's favorite. While he does it to punish Anya, Anya, you have to think he also can't bring himself to sacrifice Anya and is willing to let go of Hallie. As to Spike, I feel like we sort of have the opposite of foreshadowing because in this episode, he is so much the Spike that I feel like he was developed to be in season five and in next episodes, Normal Again, 
and some of entropy, uh, he'll be very angry at Buffy once more, where here he seemed to accept that the relationship was truly over, to wish her well despite his own pain and need to do a little bit of posturing and make her jealous. He seemed to be in a better place. Both of them did. And in those two episodes, and of course seeing Red where he sexually assaults Buffy, Spike is once again angry and is not wishing Buffy well. Next episode, he will, in fact, say some really horrible things that contribute largely to her not taking the antidote that Willow prepares for her. Now, we'll see if there are moments that explain why Spike zigzags back and forth. Of course, it's not unusual as you're as you process a breakup or deal with the end of a relationship to have your feelings swing back and forth. But this felt so like something of a resolution. And I question whether it's because some things will happen that will change Spike's view or that will push him to the other side of the pendulum, or if it's because Joss Whedon wrote this scene and the bulk of those next two episodes are not written by Whedon. And I should have looked. I'm pretty sure Whedon also didn't write seeing Red. And it makes me wonder whether if he had been more involved in season six, whether we might have seen a different spike. The story arc, I have to think, would be the same because I'm sure he was still involved in the overall story arc, but perhaps more would have been layered in. I might have bought Spike's arc in this season more. I might have believed his actions because perhaps Whedon could have gotten in there whatever his vision was of Spike. I know he wanted Spike to be evil or to make clear to the audience that Spike was still evil. Perhaps he could have done it in a way that I would have found more consistent with the way Spike was written in seasons four and five. But we'll see. Maybe there are things that justify that. That is it for foreshadowing and spoilers and for the episode Hell's Bells. Thank you again for listening and a special thank you to patrons who support the show. Remember to check out all the bonus content that is available for you on Patreon. And please come back everyone in two weeks for the next episode, season six, episode 17, one of my favorites, Normal Again, where Buffy hallucinates that she's in a psychiatric facility. Her parents are alive and Dawn really does not exist. You can find back episodes of the podcast on YouTube or at lisalilly.com, where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy and the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lisa M. Lilly. That's L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. Or email me at BuffyStoryPod at gmail.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Thank you.